Good morning. There's a certain scent in the air. Um, we're not just anticipating the Christmas day, we are celebrating the Christmas season. Would you say amen to that? So let me be the first one to greet you. Merry Christmas. Now we have embarked on preaching on the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not about doom and gloom. The book of Revelation is not about bad things that will happen in the future. The book of Revelation is about the coming of Jesus Christ. He will come back soon. There are people outside the church who think that we Christians are a bunch of crazies because we believe that Jesus is coming back. If we, are, if we believe that Jesus is coming back, then so be it. We're a bunch of crazies. But we believe that he will physically and literally come back here on earth for us. Anyone say amen? amen. All right. So, if this is new to you, or if the Revelation been reading, about, I want to make sure that we are on the same page. All right. So, I asked some of my friends from the Bible Project to help us explain how to read the Book of Revelation and simplify it for us. I'd like you to watch this. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood, mountains crumble, mutant locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world? No. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Because I don't always see things the way they really are. Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like a revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example, take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room. Oh, right. He's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's people in his own day. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself. Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life. So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation. And they can give hope, or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these dreams and visions is difficult. I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea 
sea, trampling people on the land. And then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. What is going on? Yeah. Apocalyptic literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, and it's packed with symbolism. How can I know what these symbols mean? Well, first, by studying the rest of your Bible. Apocalyptic imagery is based on biblical design patterns that begin in the book of Genesis and then develop throughout the Bible. Like the chaotic sea in the first sentences of the Bible that God tames but doesn't eliminate as he orders creation. And so the sea becomes an image of danger, death, and cosmic chaos. Ah, and the dry land, which comes out of the sea, is the safe ordered place where humans are supposed to rule as God's image. Yes, and also on the land are beasts that humans are supposed to oversee. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast. And start acting like violent beasts. Exactly. Now, sometimes a prophet will tell you what a symbol means. Like in Daniel, we're told those beasts symbolize violent human kingdoms. But more often, the authors just assume you know how to trace an image through the biblical story to understand its meaning. Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right. It's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beast dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires, it's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah. Now that reminds me. When I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment, and it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the ten plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter 1, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis 1, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. And so too in the Revelation, the death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world, it's actually about the beginning of the renewed world, where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay, this is a lot to take in. It is. And there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear. To give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. All right, we... All right. Did you enjoy that? I hope that explains a lot of things about the book of Revelation. 
Now today, we will talk about one of the highlights of the book of Revelation. It's called the 1,000 years of reign of Christ, or a.k.a. the millennium. Anybody heard about this one? All right. I'm, I'm guessing this is your first time to hear about this, or some of you may have heard or read about this one. This is called the millennium, or the 1,000 years or reign of Christ. It's found in Revelation chapter 20. The question is, what is this all about? When did it start? When will it end? And during this time of Christ's 1,000 years, what is Christ doing? What is Satan and the demons are doing? What is the church doing? And what is the rest of the world doing during this time? Let me begin by reading the passage, Revelation 20, verse 1 and the following. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's the millennium. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the 1,000 years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came... And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, in these six verses, the thousand years were mentioned at least three times. Because this is important. A thousand years or millennium is presented by John to his readers and his hearers to be symbolic. If there's anything to learn about this 1,000 years, it's a figure of speech, it's symbolic. You cannot take this literal. Why? Because this is part of his vision on the book of Revelation. Now, think of all the numbers in the book of Revelation because we have started from Revelation chapter 1. Think of the four living creatures in chapter 3. Think of the 24 elders in chapter 4. Or think of the 1,260 days in chapter 11. Or the 144,000 people from every tribe, every language, every tongue, and every nation. Think of the mark of the beast, the 666. These are all symbols to begin with. And so when you come to Revelation chapter 20 and you go to the 1,000-year reign of Christ, you must take this also symbolically. When Adolf Hitler and the rest of the Nazis coined the phrase the Third Reich, they did not mean a literal 1,000 years of reign. They meant an indefinite amount of time, just like pattern after the Roman Empire, which lasted for more than 1,000 years. So this 1,000 years is to be taken symbolically. Let me give you another one. When Peter was explaining about the patience of God, he talked about God is slow and, and patient. And he gave us a metaphor of this 1,000 years. So listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He said, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord, one day is as thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He does not mean to say literal 1,000 years is one day to the Lord. He's just giving us a figure of speech. It's just an indefinite amount of time, a very long time. Anyone know of anyone who has aged for more than 1,000 years? Now, the Bible gives us those people who lived in Genesis who lived for a long time, never reached 1,000 years. There was this guy who was named Methuselah. He lived for 969 years, never 1,000 years. See, 1,000 years is a figure of speech, but an indefinite amount of time. It's a very, very long time. The figure of speech of 1,000 years to symbolize this long amount of time. So what that means is that we who are reading the book of Revelation should not calculate and count the number of years until we find ourselves thinking that Jesus Christ will be coming September 1, 2024. It's not in our place to calculate those numbers. Jesus did not say when he will be coming back. But I'm going to tell you a secret. August 2, 2025. It's a joke. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. See, the book of Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's not a Rubik's Cube. It's not a jigsaw puzzle where you piece things together and you calculate the number of years. The book of Revelation is a letter full of vision to encourage the church in the first century that while they undergo persecution, Jesus is reigning at that time. Jesus controls and manages the world. It's meant to encourage, not to scare people. The same way it works today, when you read the book of Revelation, it is meant to encourage us of the other reality that Jesus Christ reigns not just on heaven, but also on earth. Remember your prayer. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Symbolic. If this is symbolic, and if this means an indefinite amount of time, then the question is, when did this start? And well, when will this end? According to verse 2 and 3, it says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. This verse is talking about what is happening during the 1,000 years. Where is Satan and where are the demons and what are they doing during the 1,000 years? It says in verse 3, And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. If there's anything about what Satan is doing and his demons is that during this time for 1,000 years, he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Now, this 1,000 years while Satan is bound, is in the pit. The word pit in the other English version of your Bible is also called abyss. Not sure if you're using NIV, but in NIV, it's abyss. In English Standard Version, it's the pit, but it's the same thing. The pit or abyss. Abyss is like a very deep hole in the ground. So remember Joseph, he has uh, so many brothers. His brothers were jealous of him. So they brought, brought Joseph to the pit. And, and after that, they sold him to Egypt. Joseph was in the pit and he cannot escape. It's like a prison for him. And so the understanding is that Satan, when he was bound and put in the pit, he was like 
controlled, restricted, imprisoned. Let me give you another one. When Jesus went to a boat one day to, together with his disciples, they came across the Sea of Galilee, and they came to a place by the name of Gadarene. Anyone know this place? Gadarene. This place is where the Legion 10 Fretensis was stationed during the first century church. During this time, the moment that Jesus hopped off the boat together with his disciples, they were met with a person who is demon-possessed. We call that uh, a person of Gadarene. This person is demon-possessed. He's dirty, he's naked, he's crazy. The people would lock him and chain him, but he's too strong, he would tear down the shackles, the chains. He lived in the catacombs or in the tombs. And, and he met with Jesus. The moment Jesus met him, Jesus asked for his name. And what he said is this, my name is Legion. What does Legion mean? Legion is a military unit that means 6,000 to more than 6,000 foot soldiers. What that means is that the demons inside this person is not just one or two, but many or multitude, just like legions, many. What's interesting here is not how many, how many demons inside this person is. What's interesting is what they said and they begged Jesus to do when Jesus confronted him. This is, this is uh, interesting. Now, listen to Luke chapter 8, verse 30 and the following. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Why would the demons beg Jesus not to be put in the abyss? Very interesting. It's the same thing that is mentioned in Revelation 20, abyss or pit. It says, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. What well, the reasons why maybe some people don't eat pigs. And they begged him to let them enter these. So they gave them permission. Because in the biblical context, pigs are unclean. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank in the lake and drowned. They would rather possess the pigs and be drowned in the lake than go to the abyss. Because again, the pit or the abyss symbolizes restriction. When you cast out demons, you restrict their movements. Notice the demons here beg not to be thrown in the abyss. It's the same place where Satan was thrown for 1,000 years. This is what we're saying. During the 1,000 years of the reign of Christ, Satan's activity is restricted. He cannot deceive the nations. What this means is that if this is figurative, this, this is a figure of speech, it means that we should not take this literally and we should not speculate about the exact place where this abyss can be found. Some people would take that this is the Bermuda Triangle or the Kola Well in Russia, the big hole abyss in Russia. Well, the abyss, again, refers to the restriction of Satan's movement. That's why there's a phrase that follows with it. It says, so that he might not deceive the nations. So when Jesus meant, so sorry, when John mentioned Satan locked in the pit for 1,000 years, he did not mean that Satan is restricted there in that particular place, which means Satan is still moving around. Satan is still around. That's why Apostle Peter said, the devil prowls like a lion waiting for someone to devour. 
it simply means that with regards to the nation and the Gospels, Satan's hands are tied. So by implication, what this means is that when you share the Gospel, when you share the testimony of your faith, when you talk to people about the Gospel of truth, Satan's hands are tied. He cannot intervene. And that's his restriction. Let me give you another one. This is very interesting. When Jesus was asking his disciples about his true identity, his disciples began by saying, you are Jeremiah, you are Isaiah, you are this prophet so-and-so. But then Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember that? When, when Peter said, you are the Christ or the Messiah, he simply means king. And there are a series of kings in Israel. David was, you know, the epitome of king. He's the expected, you know, Jesus is the expected pattern of king after David. David after God's own heart. Messiah king. But when Peter added the phrase, the son of the living God, he used this phrase as how the Romans used this. Divifili, son of God. What this means is that he is divine. His identity is divine. So when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he is proclaiming that Jesus is not just king, but he's the divine king. It's the same concept when Peter said, you are the son of God, you are the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus replied to him this way, and this is the connection, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. After saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what's the connection here? The connection is that during the time of Jesus' reign, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What does it mean? That means during this time, Satan is bound in a sense that he cannot make a full frontal attack against the church. You see, there's a war going on beginning from Genesis chapter 3 where there is, was a war that will be going along uh, in between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. You find that in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And this war is going on until the time of Jesus Christ. But then Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan cannot attack the church and eliminate us because we have the protection of God. This is the same way that John used in a metaphor in Revelation chapter 12. We have preached about this long time ago. But there was this metaphor again in Revelation 12 verse 17. It says, Then the dragon, which is Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But who are the offspring of this woman? Listen to this. Or those who keep the commandments of God, and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is you, that's me, that's the church. Satan is against the church. He is at war with the church. But Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let, let's be clear. During the 1,000 years of Christ's reign, Satan will still be on the move. But his movement is restricted in the context of deceiving the nations. There will be a series of attacks on the church. And that's why in Revelation 6, John saw a vision of souls under the altar, souls of the saints who were slain or persecuted or beheaded or burned at the stake. These people, Christians, died 
holding on to the testimony of Jesus Christ, which means Satan can influence people who can kill Christians. See, even if you're Christians, we are not, we are not safe with regards to that. Because Satan's activity is only restricted in the context of not being able to intervene in sharing the gospel. The church will be subject to physical death, but not the second death. And when we talk about the second death, we're talking about hell. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 says, Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. Jesus holds the keys to hell. That's what it means. But that also means by implication that we Christians, we church, are vulnerable to persecution. We are vulnerable to injustice. We are vulnerable to poverty. We are vulnerable to sickness. Even if you don't want to believe it, we are vulnerable to those things. That is, except the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The second death. With regard to the lies of the enemy... The Bible said we have the sword of the Spirit. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shield of faith. We have the belt of truth. We have the armor of God to withstand the attacks of the enemy. But do not be mistaken, the enemy is on the attack. We're not safe in that regard. He will always be on the attack. Temptations will be always around us. If that is so... Why is it that sometimes we blame Satan for our failures in immaturity? The reason why we feel not going to church on Sunday to worship is not because Satan is hanging onto your eyelids so that you cannot open your eyes. Or that like Wonder Woman, he was using his invisible lasso to tie you and chain you to your bed. Now, Satan has nothing to do with that. We are just lazy to get up. That's the only reason. I think the reason why is it's because we have a misplaced priority. When Christians do not really understand that worship is our obligation to God, then it's always an option. When Christians don't understand that going to church is worshiping the living God, then it becomes an option. See, the reason why we fail to detect the lies of the enemy, the lies of Satan, is because we are not experts on the truth. And how do you become experts on the truth? We study the scriptures. I understand that after a long day, we want to relax. So you use your remote control, you watch Netflix and binge watch. But let me tell you this, meditation also helps. Prayer also helps. Music also helps. Counting your blessings also helps, not just Netflix. Hours and hours of Facebook and TikToks, I think, won't really help if rest is what we're seeking for. So if we're going to try to fix this, we have to fix our priority, and the rest will follow. This 1,000 year of Christ's rule have started way, way before. So the question is, when did this 1,000 years start? It started when Jesus was born. So remember when Jesus was born, there were three kings. <coughs> of course not. That's fake news. There were not three kings. There were wise men. And there were not just three. There are plenty of them. So there were people, wise men, coming from the east who came to Jerusalem seeking for the king. They went to Herod and asked, where is this king of the Jews? 
they understood that Jesus is king when he was born. And the same thing that happened to Pilate. When Pilate was interrogating Jesus before he was crucified, Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you betcha. Okay, I'm trying to be animated here because you look sleepy. Well, he said yes. Now, two things here. Both the wise men and Pilate both misunderstood what it means for Jesus to be the king because they fail in their understanding of what it means for Jesus to be king. Their understanding is that Jesus is only king of the Jews and nothing else, period. You see, this is the problem. So when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he went with his disciples and corrected that mistake. He's not just king of the Jews, he's king of the whole world. This is what he said in Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, not just some authority, few authority, he said, Tapanta, all authority in Israel. No, he did not say that. All authority in the United States? No, he did not say that. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth, think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything in creation is under his authority in heaven and on earth, which means he's not just a local king in Israel. He's not just a local king of a small country in Palestine. He's king of the universe, the heaven and the earth. Every Jewish prayer starts with, Baruch ata Adonai Elheinu Melech Haolam. Melech is king. Haolam is the whole world. Jesus is king of the whole world. The moment he was born, he's king. The time that he's coming back, he's coming to reclaim this kingdom for himself. There's this one passage in the book of Luke where Jesus, interestingly, commissioned 72 of his disciples. And he gave them authority to cast out demons. And the 72 were so happy. And then when they came back, they said, Jesus, the demons even are falling under authority. They're obeying our every command. Instead of celebrating with them, this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, don't take this literally again. When he said that I saw Satan fall, like lightning from heaven. Is Jesus trying to nitpick on scorpions and serpents? Why not just, you know, earthworms and butterflies and frogs and crickets? Why only scorpions and serpents? Again, this is a, a figure of speech. But what he's saying is that Satan's fall has come, just like Babylon's fall has come. See, Satan was the one who tempted Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights. He said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but bow down to worship me. He's pretending he owns the world. He's pretending he's king of the world. Jesus knows better. He's the king of the world. He's the Melech HaOlam. He has authority over everything. That's why when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he was telling his disciples, Satan's kingdom is down. We are now in business. That is what Jesus is trying to say. See, Jesus was born as king, but that means he bears the authority as king. When he came here, he did not just announce the kingdom of God. He demonstrated what it means to rule the kingdom of God. He fed the people. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He forgave sins. 
The only one who can do that is if you have authority of God. Only God can forgive sins. Which means Jesus has authority over all. He can do that because he has. And when he ascended to heaven, the first century church was immediately attacked by the enemy. One of the deacons was named Stephen. Stephen was brought to trial in the Sanhedrin just like Jesus Christ. And the Sanhedrin is saying, you are blaspheming God. There are so many charges against Stephen. But Stephen gave a very long speech. You will read that in Acts chapter 7. At the end of his speech, he said, in a vision, I saw heaven opened, and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he was tried for blasphemy. What that means is that he's confirming that Jesus Christ is king, not just in heaven, but also on earth. And here's the connection. During the 1,000 years of Christ's reign, Satan is bound only in the context of, again, being restricted to deceive the nations. If we get this right, then Matthew 28, verse 18 makes sense. Because when he said, all authority has been given to me, he commissioned all his disciples to go make disciples, baptize, and teach them to obey. Our mandate as a church, our commission is not to attack the enemy. It's not to make war against Satan. It's not to haunt every demons in haunted houses. It's not to seek after demon-possessed people. That is not our mandate. Our mandate is to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. If we are not doing that as a church, there's something wrong with what we're doing. Because as far as I know, that's the only thing that Jesus told us, the main thing that we have to be doing. And why is that? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What that means is that when you share your faith, when you share the gospel, when you talk to people about the truth of the scriptures, Satan cannot intervene. He's restricted. And that will happen for 1,000 years. The only reason I think why stops people from hearing the gospel is when the church is not doing her job. When the church is not doing her job, people are not baptized, people are not discipled, people are not taught to obey. See, our job is not to organize majongs and bingos. Other churches do that, by the way. Our job is not to entertain people. Our job is not to teach people how to manage finances. Other institutions can do that, but also that helps. Our job and our main job is to disciple, baptize, and teach people to obey. That means from the time that Jesus was born up to his second coming, that is the 1,000 years of Christ's reigning, not just on heaven, but also on earth. Now, do not be deceived by the physical absence of Jesus on earth. Because some people would say, Jesus is not here physically. He only reigns in heaven. He does not care about what's happening here on earth. That's not true. Because before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, I will not leave you orphans. I will send the Holy Spirit to fill you, to empower you, to do what I asked you to do. He sent the Holy Spirit. Let me backtrack a little bit because this is, I think, is interesting. In the Old Testament context, you only worship God in the temple. You cannot worship God anywhere else, not in your own house, not in Africa, not in the United States of America, only in the temple, in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. 
That is the only legitimate place to worship God. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant is there. It's the physical manifestation of God's throne on earth. The most holy place is where the Holy Spirit resides. That is the place of worship. So that means every day and throughout the year, the Jews or the Israelites would come from all over the place to travel all the way to Jerusalem just to worship God and sacrifice an animal. And that to them is a privilege. Every festival in Jewish calendars, they go there to worship God in Jerusalem, in the temple. But now that Jerusalem is no more, where do you worship God? Where do we worship God? Do we go back to Mount Sinai just like Elijah and Moses? Do we go to Jerusalem and fly over there and touch the wailing wall just to expect that the presence of God is there? Or do we build an altar inside our house, decorated with flowers and incense and candles? Where do we meet with God? Where is God's presence? The Bible teaches us, according to Apostle Paul, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church, not the building, not the theater, not the cathedrals, we the people are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And He resides in us. This is the reason why it's imperative, according to the book of Hebrews, that we meet together in person. And when we do that, we worship God. This place with us becomes sacred space. The Holy Spirit is here. God is in this place. And you know who's not in this place? The devil. The devil cannot be in the sacred space. So if you're sleepy right now, do not blame the devil. If something is on your mind, do not blame the devil. You are in the second space. We are gathered together. Now let me address this difficult passage in verse 4. Now we know what happened, what's happening during the time of 1,000 years about Satan and demons. But what about verse 4? He said, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. It's the mark of the beast, the 666. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, that's for sure. That means the people who died in the first century up to this time, all the Christians are with Jesus reigning for 1,000 years. Let me continue, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. He's talking about the unbelievers, the rest of the dead. This is the first resurrection. And he said, blessed and holy is the one who shares the first resurrection over such a second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for 1,000 years. Now, let's talk about the church. When we talk about verses 4 up to 6, we're talking about the church who have died holding on to the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you have loved ones who have died and you believe they are believers in Christ, they are in heaven waiting for the resurrected bodies. They are, in fact, right now reigning with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. Again, this is a figure of speech. But they are with God. Now, I'm, I'm going to try be, to be very sensitive what it means is that if you die today, and I hope you won't, I'm not ready for any funeral service right now. What I'm saying is that just in case somebody dies today, 
If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are his disciple, you go straight to the throne of God. Your soul goes there. That is your first resurrection, according to Revelation chapter 20. You will become part of the 144,000 from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. That is the first resurrection. There will be a second resurrection when your body, the resurrected body, will be given to you. That is in the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is what they, were, they have been waiting for. John also adds, the second death has no power over them. What's the second death? The second death is what Jesus has been telling us about. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. The hell is the second death. Listen to Jesus talk about soul and body in Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. See, Christians, when you die today, you go straight to the throne of God in heaven. You await the resurrected body. You are not subject to hell anymore. You see, Jesus has authority over hell. Only Jesus has authority over hell. And it's a misunderstanding that this guy wearing a tight latex in red with pitchfork is in charge of hell. He's not in charge of hell. Jesus is in charge of hell. Satan, too, will suffer in hell. Now, again, I don't want to be insensitive right now, but hear me out. I'm going to rather say this to you straight than give you false hope. And after the service, you can tell so we're not friends anymore. I don't like your preaching. That's cool with me. But I would rather tell you the truth. See, your pet will not be in heaven. No matter how much you love your dog, Max, Lucy, Groucho, whoever his name is, your pets will not be in heaven. Why? Because only souls of the saints will be given resurrected body. This also means if you have loved ones who did not know Jesus, who did not follow Jesus, but who followed the beast, who compromised in their faith, they will not have a resurrected body. Why? Because only Jesus has the authority to give them the resurrected body. And, and the Bible said that if you follow Jesus, you will have a resurrected body. If there's anything that we can say is that Jesus has authority. We do not have the authority to change the situation of those who have already died. No matter how we pray for them and for their souls, that's it. See, that's the reason why we have exam. After the exam, you cannot change your grade anymore. You have to review exam, and then you have to accept the, the outcome. It's the same thing here. You have to live your life dead or death, and then you will have to accept the outcome. See, God is giving us plenty of time. He's not slow to His promise. He's giving us enough time to repent. So we are in this predicament. Now, we have established from the beginning that the church, those who have already died and fallen asleep are already with God in heaven. But what about us, the church today, who are still alive, who are still breathing? Okay, check your seatmate if you're still breathing. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. Now, we as the church, what are we doing during the reign of Christ? What we're doing is the commission of Jesus Christ. Make disciples baptize people and teach them to obey Jesus Christ and while we do that there's an, an inevitable fact is that the church 
is not perfect. There will be no perfect church here on earth. You are not perfect. I am almost perfect. It's not true. <laughs> Don't ask my wife. <laughs> We're not perfect. We're in the process of perfection. That's why you don't make my perfection or my maturity or my righteousness a standard of righteousness. Not Elder Edwin's righteousness. The only standard that we have for righteousness and maturity is Jesus Christ. Why? Because of all, He did not sin. That's why His sacrifice was perfect to God, acceptable, because He did not sin. I can almost guarantee you that you will find no perfect church in this life. And I can also guarantee you that in this church, one day, you will either offend people or will be offended by people. That's a sad fact, but it's a hard truth. Because we have different personalities. We have different preferences. The way we speak, the way we act, sometimes are not acceptable to others. And that's the reason why I think we have been given one of the fruits of the Spirit, other than love, is patience. We have to learn how to get along with each other. Husband and wives, you have the best opportunity to exercise the patience. Here in the church, we also have the opportunity to exercise the patience. If there's any guarantee, you will not find the perfect church. I think some people would go to big churches because they want to stay anonymous. But how do you really exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, humility, if you are anonymous. There is no growth in being anonymous. Remember the prodigal son? Remember the parable of the prodigal son? He went away, but the Bible said also that he came back. The prodigal son came back when he realized he had to go. What that means is that you cannot run forever. A Christian cannot run forever. If you're a son, you cannot run forever. See, the lost sheep is different. The lost sheep is lost. He doesn't know its way back. The prodigal son is a runaway. It's different. He knows his way back. He just prefers to be somewhere else doing something else. Lost and runaway are two different things. Now, some people are lost. Some people are runaways. But I would say that real sons, they come back. So I'm not worried about those people or if people would, you know, sometimes get tired of coming to church because I believe that if they are real children of God, they would come back. And the Father is always with open arms willing to accept them. So should we? I think the real prodigal son is not the younger son. I think the real prodigal son is the elder son because he cannot accept that his father has forgiven his younger brother. He's too jealous. He will not accept his younger brother. I think he's his real prodigal son. It's the, it's the hypocrisy in the older brother that makes him the prodigal son. That's why we have to love each other. That's why we have to be patient with each other. Husband and wives, we have to be patient with each other. I know that the more you grow old, the less patient you become. Yes, Elder Deacon and Fred is here. Yes, yes. I mean, we all go through that. But you see, the prodigal son, the younger son, came back when he realized that he needed his father. And the father knew that one day would come, his younger son would come back. 
His younger son would run out of entertainment, would run out of money, would run out of friends, and he would realize what really matters most. Things that really matters most. Now, having said that, the scriptures always use the language of new creation, dead to life, etc., etc. When the scriptures use that, he's giving us a sort of a picture of a new status. Let me explain this new status. Let me give five more minutes to this one. Say, for example, America goes woke, as in too woke that you said, that's enough for me, I'm out of here. I'm retiring in, say, Portugal or Finland or maybe somewhere in, in north of uh, Europe over there. Or maybe if you're adventurous, maybe North Korea or Zimbabwe, somewhere in the sub-Saharan continent of Africa. But wherever you would decide to go, you must apply for visa, correct? You must apply for visa. The moment that visa is posted on your passport, that is the only time you can go to that country and reside there. Without that, you cannot. That is a change of status. Nothing changed in you. Your name did not change. You did not change. Your status changed. You see, having eternal life is a change of status. Although we are still here, our status have changed already. Apostle Peter had another metaphor that he used. He used the word new creation. We are a new creation, pointing back to the first creation, Genesis chapter 1. We are a new set of creation. Apostle Peter gave us a different metaphor where he said, we are exiles on earth. We have a different citizenship. We are tourists on this earth. The real kingdom, the real citizenship is not here, but in the present, in the future, rather. When Jesus was talking about the resurrection, he was talking about a different kind of life. See, what's interesting is this one. When Jesus talked to, to the Jews, he explained eternal life in the context of how the Jews understood eternal life. To them, eternal life is different. Eternal life to the Jews is in the context of understanding that there's a restoration of fellowship. Think of Adam and Eve expelled from the Garden of Eden. Restoration of fellowship. Or think of the Jews who were exiled in Babylon, restoration of fellowship with God. Think of the full access to the most holy place without having to kill an animal, restoration of fellowship. Think of having the full realization of God's image in you, restoration of fellowship. This is how they understood eternal life. Let me tell you something that's maybe shocking, but this is the truth coming from Revelation chapter 20. Heaven is not our final destination. Let me say that again, and I will explain. Hold on to your horses. Heaven is not our final destination. So when you die here, your souls go to the throne of God. You await the resurrected body. The final destination is not there. Heaven is temporary. Jesus has bigger plans for you. That's why you have, will have to come back next Sunday so I can explain about the new heaven and new earth. See, the new heaven and the new earth with the resurrected body is the ultimate hope and our final destination, not heaven. The new heaven and the new earth. This new heaven and new earth will be a different world, a whole different world. Like the song, a whole new world. This is a totally different world. A world where there's no pain or suffering, a world without Satan and his demons, a world where God absolutely rules and the church enjoys fellowship with him. This is the ultimate des destination. Not the Bahamas, not Switzerland. This is the ultimate destination. So I think when 
when some people would think about heaven, they would think that heaven is boring because they think that all we will do in heaven for eternity is to sing praises to God. It may not be the case because I think there will be other things involved. Think about this. When Jesus Christ officiated the last communion, He said this in Matthew 26. He said, I tell you, I will not drink again on this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus drinks wine. Wink, wink here. Do not judge those people who drink wine as do not judge those people who eat pork or do not judge people who eat dinuguan or do not judge people who eat bagoong. Jesus said he will drink again the fruit of the vine in his Father's kingdom. Now, whether it's figurative or literal, it's pointing to the celebration that will happen when he comes back here and when we all gather together with the resurrected body. We will celebrate with God. That's what it means. I don't know if there's food in heaven. There's no explanation whether there is, and I hope there is. But it points to a celebration. See, when we commemorate God's Jesus Christ's death on the cross, we're not just commemorating His death. We are also commemorating His reign. He's reigning now for 1,000 years until the second time that He will come back for us and raise us from the dead. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And we declare that bigger plans for us. We declare that we believe that you're reigning now both in heaven and on earth. We declare that you are our Lord and that we obey you in, in every chance we get. Obey every command that you have given us. Father, allow us to live a faithful life, faithful in your eyes. Not faithful in the standards of, of anyone, but faithful only in your eyes. Father, help us not just to be faithful, but also allow us, Father, to enjoy the life that we have now as we celebrate your reign. Help us to see your will clearly so that we, that our lives and our will will align into your will. As we celebrate the communion today, Father, I pray that you will keep us in tune with the Spirit. Help us to see clearly that you are coming back. In Jesus' name, amen.